0: Well good morning. I'm Mike McNichols, and It's a it's a privilege to be with you this morning. And as as Sandy so helpfully pointed out, it's it's the first Sunday in Lent, and it is a time of of reflection. It's a time of remembering. Uh, we we look forward to what we know is coming. We look forward to Holy Week, especially to to Good Friday, we look forward to Easter. And and in that we remember Jesus, the Christ, who as the apostle Paul tells us, died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And we know that Lent's observed over a 40-day period. It's a, it's a kind of echo of what Jesus went through in the wilderness in a time of 40 days of prayer and fasting, where he successfully resisted those three temptations that came to him. And, and for our part during this Lenten season, we stop and we recognize how often we fail in such resistance. And so we have a time of confession and repentance as we experienced this morning. And and in that observation, we are reminded that sin's a real thing. It's real. It's a reality. And like all of the seasons of the church year, Lent is the time of remembering. We remember God. We remember what God has done. And we remember the truth about who we are. And so while it might be a bit uncomfortable, and nobody likes to really do this, talking about sin this morning is probably appropriate, especially given our texts of Scripture. And as you are probably aware, the Bible speaks quite a lot about sin, but not in just one way. Metaphors abound in the text— uh, just as they have been imagined and translated and reinterpreted all throughout history, and so has our thinking been about sin been impacted by those images. For example, in the Greek of the New Testament, it suggests that, that sin's uh, on one hand sort of like a, a wayward arrow that gets shot at the target but just veers off and never quite hits the bullseye. Or, or it's like being on a path that's the designated path to the way that you should go and then you get off the path and wander into the danger of the wilderness. Now, I have to say, on a personal note, the metaphor of straying off the path has particular meaning for me. Some years ago, I had taken some people from my church when I was a pastor on a a retreat, and part of the retreat was to go on a hike together, which we did, and there was a designated path. But a few of us decided it would be a lot better to carve our own way through the shrubbery. Can't imagine whose idea that was. And we found ourselves finally wanting to get back to the path, realizing we had gotten in over our heads, and we were swimming through this brush. And one of our folks said, hey, isn't that poison oak? And it was a veritable ocean of poison oak. And I am particularly allergic to poison oak. So the next month was absolute torture for me. We were all wearing shorts and T-shirts, so arms and legs. I was the only one that got it. Everybody else appeared to be immune. And I was, a, I was a train wreck. And I tried all the home remedies. Turned out later, every one of them was the opposite of what I should have done. So after a month, I went to the doctor and he checked me out and very calmly said, you know, this is the worst case of skin infection I've seen in 40 years of practicing medicine. So yes, straying off the path has significant meaning for me. And it's a vivid metaphor about sin. Well, throughout the Bible, sin is expressed in individual actions or in actions, but it's also seen as the, as the complicity of a people as sin becomes systemic among a people. As in the sin of Israel, turning away from God in order to worship idols and to engage in, in international power struggles. Sin is characterized as, as, as a burden that, that bows the back of the, of the one who bears it, like a weight that you carry on your shoulders. It's, it's like a debt, a heavy financial debt that simply cannot be repaid. As in Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant, it's, uh, it's like a disease that spreads universally or, or, or it's like a, an evil authoritarian ruler who holds dominion over the entire world. Sin is framed as something internal to us, but it's also external, something that exists outside of us so the metaphors about sin in the Bible are abundant. But it's kind of interesting to stop and think about sin as a, a thing, isn't it? That sin has thingness to it. The, the Bible talks about it as this heavy thing that clings to a person's back like, like a fat, evil monkey. There's another image to take home with you. Or, or it's, a, it's a ledger that you open up and it shows you that you owe more than you're ever gonna be able to pay. Uh, sin is a, is a power that is revealed by the law that came through Moses. It, it's through this thing, it's as though this thing called sin has the, a life of its very own. It's a, it's a virus that's out there, but it's inside of us as well. But it's a virus that never, ever dies out. Well, as I said, we're here today with an eye toward Holy Week, and we believe that somehow, in the death and resurrection of Jesus sin has been rendered toothless, so to speak. Sin is active still, sin is alive, we know that, but its power to have the ultimate say in human life has been dismantled. So in a sense, we could say that sin is in its death throes. It's thrashing about violently as its end approaches. And and we believe that, we believe in God's intentions for the new heaven and the new earth when sin, along with death, will ultimately be destroyed. But, In the meantime, sin remains a reality. And how we think about sin says a lot about how we think about God and about what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. And people often struggle with this. I've known folks who have gotten really stuck on the idea that sin is nothing more than this this list of things that God keeps of all of our various offenses from our minor Peccadillos to major horrific crimes, and they live in fear that they'll ultimately get tripped up by the things that are on that list. And so God becomes a bit like, like the Santa Claus in the song that proclaims that he knows that you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And, and as the thinking goes, while God is theologically bound to forgive our sins, there's this gap between each new sin that we commit, even those that are rattling around in our heads, and the act of repentance, and it's in that gap where God would just love to send a flaming meteor to crush the person before they can utter a confession, and then he will gleefully consign them to the fires of hell for all of eternity. I know that sounds weird, but I've known folks that believe that. I've known others who who accept the idea that God has forgiven our sins of the past and the present and the future, but in order to have a decent and righteous life, you've got to properly manage those sins, lest they get the best of you, because they just keep coming at you. It's like being on a tennis court, facing off with an out-of-control tennis ball machine that just keeps throwing these balls at you willy-nilly, and you've got to make sure you hit every one of them with your racket, or you're going to be in trouble. Or it's like spending your whole life playing a a demonic version of whack-a-mole. Some of you will have to Google that, but wait till after church. You know, leadership gurus have a name for this kind of thing. It's called the Walenda Factor. Carl Wallenda was a, a high-wire artist who spent most of his life performing daring feats, usually without a net, and uh, his whole acrobatic family was known as the Flying Wallendas. But when, in 1978, when Carl was 73 years old, he, he fell to his death during a performance in uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. And his wife later said that in the three months just prior to his death, Carl began doing something he had never, ever done before he started focusing his energies on not falling rather than on the anticipation of a successful act. This, this fear of falling or this fear of failure is called the Walenda factor. It's amazing that we Christians who are told in our scriptures that God in and through Jesus Christ has defeated the power of sin and death, that we would have our own version of the Walenda factor that we could ever let The fear of sin permanently rents space in our heads. Well, Lent isn't a time, I don't think, for us to hunker down in the fear of the onslaught of sin. Like our weekly time of confession, it's a time to recognize the reality of sin and the allure that comes with it. And yes, repentance is absolutely appropriate, but it is a repentance that is grounded in the confidence of God's love and forgiveness, rather than in the fear that God might actually turn his back on us. You know, the story from our gospel reading this morning is is really helpful when it comes to this topic of sin. It's a story that could only have come from Jesus, since he was apparently away from everybody else when it all took place. Some have said that just as the text seems to indicate that that the devil, Satan, showed up as a a physical presence before him. Others suggest that the experience might have come to Jesus in a a dream or a vision or maybe in his own processing of thoughts. And still others speculate that Satan was kind of a a label put on a group of people who had approached Jesus in the wilderness trying to recruit him to their cause. But regardless, it's, it's Jesus' response to these three temptations that is the most important to us. Each one of the temptations seeks to lure Jesus into a place of power. Turn stones into bread, and the world will flock to you. Throw yourself off the temple and be rescued by angels, and everyone will have no choice but to worship you. And bow down and worship the tempter? Do that, and you will secure your seat at the table of domination." Well, Jesus counters each temptation temptation with a text of Scripture, even those that are thrown at him through Scripture. Most importantly, Jesus remembers what the scriptures say. He remembers God the Father. He remembers the character and intentions of God. And he remembers who he is. And as memory emerges, the temptations fade into irrelevance. They are not representative of sins to be managed. In light of God's purposes, they are simply beside the point. A number of years ago, I invited a small group of people to participate with me in a discussion group about faith. I was really hoping to get some that that did not consider themselves believers, people who were honest searchers, and only one actually came, but a few folks from my church were there as well. And the guy who came had become my friend. He was the, the bartender at a local pub, also a recovering alcoholic, a very good and honest guy, a true searcher, sincere searcher of faith. I was really happy that he was there, but But one evening, my friend was challenged by another person in the group who who was not so comfortable with this more fluid conversation, and he demanded to know, "Do do you think you're a sinner? What is your definition of sin? And I got kind of nervous at this point, but my friend kind of sat back quietly and thought for a moment, and he said, I think sin is forgetting about God. Well, that halted the inquiry right there, because we all sort of sat back and took notice of that. But it's a good biblical, biblical definition, isn't it? In Psalm 106, the psalmist rehearses the story of Israel, especially their time in the wilderness after their escape from Egypt, and he identifies the cause of their unfaithfulness. It says, they forgot God, their Savior. They forgot God. The one who had done great things for them in Egypt, they forgot God. And the ancient prophet Isaiah echoes that, warning people about the consequences resulting from their own lack of memory. You have forgotten God, your Savior. You have not remembered the rock, your fortress. Therefore, though you set out the finest plants and plant imported vines, though on the day you set them out, you make them grow, and on the morning when you plant them, you bring them to bud, yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and incurable pain. Sin is grounded in forgetting about God. Lack of memory is fertile soil where seeds of sin sprout and grow. But Jesus remembered. In his book, In the Name of Jesus, Henry Nouwen characterizes Jesus' three temptations in this text as enticements to be relevant, to be spectacular, and to be powerful. And certainly, these are all temptations with which we are familiar But Jesus does not attempt to simply bat them down or or just grit his teeth until he makes them go away out of sheer willpower. He redirects the conversation entirely and moves it from a focus on personal power to devotion and worship of God the Father. There would be no fear of falling for Jesus. His eyes were already fixed on the source of life, and Jesus remembered his heavenly Father. And in doing so, He remembered who he was. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 32, is in a way an exercise in memory. It begins with remembering God's faithfulness to forgive, but then moves immediately to the memory of how unconfessed sin ravages the mind and the body. The psalmist says that lack of confession actually begins with silence, either a refusal to acknowledge sin or a denial of its reality. In the Old Testament, worship, whether it's expressed in praise or thanksgiving or lament, is generally a very noisy activity. The the Psalms are filled with all kinds of wailing and grieving and singing and dancing and rejoicing and all of that Pentecostal stuff, you know. But to be silent in that context was to create suspicion, to give the impression that you just might be up to something no good. As the preacher in Ecclesiastes reminds us, there is a time to be silent. But when it comes to unconfessed sin, the psalmist insists on some noise. The psalmist also describes the the double effect of sin. There's the the sickness that it creates, but there's also the heaviness of God's hand. The unconfessed sin is like a, a wasting disease that ravages the body And and, and while the psalmist sort of waxes desperately about the consequences of the lack of confession, sin itself doesn't get a whole lot of airplay in this particular psalm. The attention remains on the God who forgives, on the Lord who imputes no iniquity. The Lord's hand weighs heavily on the person's back, we are told, seeming at first to, to add to the suffering of the sick one who's carrying the unconfessed sin, And it's a really interesting image, this this hand. In the Old Testament, when when God's hand is is heavy upon people, it usually means that, that a rebuke or a judgment is on the way. And the only way to ease that pressure is to turn to God in repentance. So in a sense, while that hand is heavy with judgment, that is calling something out that is real, it's also a hand of grace that reminds people that forgiveness is just a breath away. The hand is a reminder that God is present, and for the psalmist, confession resulted in remembering the goodness of God, a memory that now enlivens the hearts of the hearers. Well, while the description of sin's effects in this psalm are very dramatically portrayed, we're not left there. As the psalm opens up with joy, so it closes with joyous worship, and the call to make some noise about God's steadfast love. Both the psalmist and Jesus direct our attention away from sin itself and toward God the Father. There's no dualism here, no cosmic competition where the outcome in the battle between God and sin remains yet to be determined. The ultimate defeat of the power of sin is already established And in this Lenten season, may our minds recognize the reality of sin as it exists in the world at large and within our own hearts, but with our eyes and our ears and our minds and our spirits oriented toward God the Father, whom we worship and serve, and whose steadfast love surrounds us. And in doing so, we remember God. And we remember who we are. And in worship, we pray. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good as long as you live so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen.